to the first season of the NFADB podcast, Pilot Project, constructed by the Volunteer Board of Directors of the National Family Association for Deaf Blind. This podcast will share the journeys and insights of families and educators and loved ones impacted by individuals with deaf blindness. We hope you find what we share to be beneficial, helpful, and inspiring. If you like us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. This allows NFADB to continue its partnership with iTunes. Please go to the NFADB website at nfadb.org and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening. Melanie, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you, and thank you for letting me come in and talk to you. I hope I don't bore you to sleep. I don't think that could ever happen. <laughs> so, Melanie, tell me a little bit about your history and the journey you've been on. Okay. I could tell you the long version, which will be here till tomorrow, but I won't do that to you because it's been 36 years now. I'm married, and I had two sons, and my youngest son was a preemie, Christian Knapp. He was deafblind, and we lived the, the wonderful world of deafblindness for uh, 25 years, and then in 2005, 2005, he uh, suddenly passed away. With that said, as horrible as it's been, it's been almost 11 years, he taught his family that interveners and teachers of the deafblind were what he needed to succeed in his life because the last few years of his life he was really happy. So through my devastation, I wrote a story about him and his intervener, Ann Bielert, and met up with some really good people who have helped me on this journey. Well, I'm currently the president of DBMAT, the Deafblind Multi-Handicapped Association of Texas. I didn't join DBMAT until 2004, which is the irony of it, because he was, he was older and uh, Christian died in 2005. And that family has been so supportive of what uh, we've been doing over the last few years. So I live in Houston, and I have two grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Taylor is, uh, was born in 2005. She was two months old when Christian died. I think that was something that was in the plan, too, because if it wasn't for her, I don't know how I would have made it. So she was my little saving. And then uh, Ethan's my grandson, and I warned them not to, to name him Ethan Christian, but they did anyway. And he's a little spitfire like his <laughs> Uncle Christian. <laughs> little namesake, carrying, carrying on the, the attitude. <laughs> yes, the motivator. <laughs> So, so Melanie, you have gone through the journey that I think a lot of parents here uh, fear. Mm-hmm. I know that that was difficult. Tell me a little bit about um, emotionally how, how you got through. Okay. I, I'm going to go. Uh, we, we had talked before we came on air, and if you don't mind, um, I was actually, yesterday, I was uh, moderating the medical uh, group and there were some families there that we were trying to come up with 
you know, with common themes, what was bothering us. And uh, there were some issues, but it made, it brought up memories of the guilt that all of us go through, the moms and dads go through. First, we go through the guilt of, you know, having a child that's not perfect or what's normal, but, you know, not normal. And then you go through the guilt of your child not, uh, how to say it, I kept having to change my dreams for Christian. You expect this and it's not, you know, you expect the world and this is not happening. But in the end, you know, it worked out for me. But I think you live a life of guilt, just being a mom. You also go through the grief process, I think, through your child's life, what they have to go through. Tell me, tell me about what, what were some of the things that made you feel guilty? Guilty was premature. Guilty that he, he was losing his sight and is guilty that he had to be in the hospital for a long time. You know, just um, that's not what a parent, any mom, any dad wants for, for their child. Guilty that he had to go through, you know, multiple surgeries and being stuck all the time. And, you know, we can't, we, we have no control over the situation. We have no control. You, you, you went where I was going to ask you, uh, that you had that belief that you thought you had control of it uh, mm -hmm. in some way and that mm -hmm. you could fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me, uh, let's talk about the anxiety level okay. in, in that too, because I think with that guilt comes all those other flood of negative emotions. Yeah, I think, well, you also have guilt for your other, we, we actually talked about this yesterday, because it brought, doing this yesterday brought up a lot of feelings for me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm having different feelings now because I lost my precious son, but uh, back then I have guilt because I can spend a lot of time with Landon. And Landon was on less than two years older than Christian. Mm -hmm. And Landon ended up keeping, uh, had more of a caregiver role than a sit down, beat up my brother, not that they beat each other up, but, um, you know, playing, playing with them. And just because Christian couldn't, you know, do that. Yeah. And so, so you have that, your family dynamics, you know, um, your relationship with your spouse uh, changes. It's tough, but we made it through. As things, his he came home with a lot of um, a trach and a lot of medical equipment, and there wasn't nursing 35 years ago at home. I was the nurse, yeah, yeah. and I wasn't a nurse. I became a nurse after, after the, hey, why don't you go get your degree now? So, uh, on the job training. On the right? job training, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but it was scary, and I was stressed, and I'm not ashamed yeah. to say that I used to go out in the garage, de a detached garage, and close the thing, close the door and scream my bloody head off. 
And I always wondered why the neighbors didn't call 911. <laughs> I was so stressed out. So that's how I relieved my stress, frightened the neighbors. <laughs> but the thing that you didn't do, Melanie, is you didn't keep it in. And well, I know that you, you felt like you did, to have, but to have that outlet and to be able to, that outlet, it, it had to go somewhere. So. Exactly. So, yeah, the, or were those, the, those were those overwhelmed times. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, the worst day of my life was the day that I got up and Gary and I got in the car, got in his truck, and it was the first time in 25 years that we didn't, we weren't going okay, who's got Christian? We need to have someone take care of Christian, you know, because we were going to plan his funeral. That was hard. It was very hard. But um, I told someone yesterday, too, that about another mother that had lost her son, that about the five-year mark or three, I don't remember what it was, I had a big talk with myself. I said, I was functioning well. I cried by myself. Yeah. I just had a talk with myself. I said, you've, you've got to get through this. But the things that I've been doing in Christian's honor, because I know it's the right thing to do, have really helped me keep his legacy alive. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm very proud of him and what his family's been doing. And D.B. Matt supporting us. So. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You you touched upon some things that I think people think that that's their journey alone. You know, because but so much comes of I've got to do this. I, you, you know, the functional day to day for your son or daughter becomes like the priority and then it's push it, push it down, push it, push it away. So yes, so whenever you let out that scream, it was a scream of being overwhelmed. Yeah, just this relieving stress. I wasn't angry. I've never been angry. Were you angry when he was first diagnosed? No. No? I've never been, I'm not that type of person. I, what I'm, he was in the hospital for two years. Yeah. I was grateful from zero to two before he even came home. I was very grateful that I finally got to bring home the great motivator. But uh, I've never been angry. I've always been, I'm the type of person that tell me what I have to deal with. I don't like the unknown, but tell me what I have to deal with and I'll deal with it. Yeah. So no, I've been sad for him and this educational uh, the I've been angry at that educational process, which we can get into a little bit if you want, but um, because of him being 21 years old before he got the right program yes. for him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, would, I was angry, but not at him, not at myself. I am so grateful that he had Ann Beeler and he had such a happy you know, a few years of his house, uh, of his life. I'm so grateful for that. 
So I know when he went, this is going to sound corny or weird, and I don't care. He was like, you got it, Mom? Goodbye. I'm moving on. I really do feel that way. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and he's... That, that makes me seem like you were, you called him the great motivator. Yeah, yeah, that's his... So, what was his lesson for you? He mo- I think all of our children motivate us to do things that, you know, we would never be. I am a very shy person. I know no one believes that. But I was very shy and intimidated. You know, a lot of parents are. You go into these IEP meetings and, and they are the professionals. You are the parent. Yeah. And they know what's best for your child. And I had not been to college. I had, I trusted these people. Yeah. That they knew what they were doing and that they were educated in in the areas of deaf blindness. Right. And Eh. that faith, free free and appropriate public education, that appropriate, you, you, you thought that was going to happen. Yeah, and I'm not saying it was all bad, but um, he motiv- he motivated me. First of all, I became a, a registered nurse after um, I started going to school when he was like, That's the no boys joke. were seven and nine. Training. Yeah, that was no joke. So I, I had to go back. Um, the other thing is, is that um, I had to speak for him. And once, and there were things that were just not right. So I started speaking up more and more, and I was involved with uh, TSBVI Outreach, who are amazing, but they can't sit there with our school district every day and say, okay, you got to do this. So there was, we talked a lot about trust yesterday. There was no trust where I, I, I was told things that broke my heart Mm -hmm. that Christian was not being uh, treated or the way that we had set up his IEP so he motivated me to fight for him and I got a voice and once I did you know I went hey (laughs) this isn't bad I was always respectful and I will always be respectful but um don't mess with my kids. I think all moms say that. Don't mess with my kids. Yeah, so yeah, there, there's a, I, I think there's a quality of an integrity that needs to be there uh, to uh, to ensure that the, that the fairness and the things that that uh, need to happen are happening educationally. And I, I think whenever I, whenever I imagine that scream that you're doing, I'm, I'm thinking out of just the just sheer frustration that you're his, or his family is his, are his intercessors. And those are the ones that are like intervening for him. You know, so whenever I think of that, I think of that that would draw out some frustration, but but sadness, overwhelm, stress, holy cow. Yeah, so that, I mean, there's a whole bottle and mix of that. Yeah. And and, um, so how did you stay balanced? How, How did your family stay balanced? I know the love of, of him kept it 
kept it there, but tell me, tell me more. Uh, we really had to work on it. And if this is going to be a very um, open conversation, that it got tough at times because um, I think any marriage, whether you have a special needs child or not, it's taxing on the marriage. And Gary and I are actually separated twice. But if you truly love each other and love your children, you come back and you come back better. Mm-hmm. And we did, and we've been married 40 years. So, and the, and we're good now. But I think that um, not blaming each other, I, Gary and I never blamed each other, you know, for anything. It's just life and, you know, and then when we got back together, you know, we still had struggles, but it, we stayed together because we loved each other and we loved our we loved our boys. So um, I don't know how to tell anybody how to balance it except I, I will. We talked about this yesterday. Good thing I did that yesterday before I came to you. <laughs> Is we didn't go out of town for more than twenty four hours. <laughs> until he was like 15 years old yeah. yeah, and I think we needed that you know but we didn't have any kind of respite or insurance back then so or you know any Medicaid waivers or anything so but I it. You did it we did it yeah. but we um, like Gary's mom or dad would come we would literally be gone for 24 hours which actually was not respite because you were exhausted driving (laughs) coming back but we tried to do that but he was like 15 before we actually went away for more than three or four days and then you just leave it in god's hands i i hope he's okay when i get back so (laughs) (laughs) i I think of that whenever you talk about how things got (laughs) strained like when you love somebody they're gonna they're going to hear it all, uh, you, you know, and y'all are, like, in it together. It, I, although sometimes it doesn't feel like there's together. It seems maybe, like, I'm doing all this. Do you think every argument is a bad argument? No. I think that arguing is healthy. Yeah, I think arguing is healthy. I think when you take it to, we call it hitting below the belt. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't hit below the belt by calling each other names or being not not phys, not yeah. physically hitting that that's not what I mean that's a and I should probably even rephrase that like anytime that there's like a difference of opinion or a difference of mismatched emotion even that there's conflict there but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's an argument or a fight or a no it's a, but it, but I know it can feel that some way because it's like, where's my support? Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, it sounds like then, Melanie, y'all were each other's support. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, sometimes that can become overwhelming when there weren't any other services or any other reach outs. And uh, so what's what's out there that's available now for parents that that are bootstrapping it but don't necessarily have to be? Um, well, in Texas, we have, um, I'm not familiar with other states, but in Texas, we have 
several Medicaid waivers that, you know, what it was for us back then is that we exceeded the middle income, you know, the income to get Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And there was a change, which I don't need to get into, but there was a, a change back in 1983. But there are, you know, there are Medicaid waivers that don't look at the parents. They don't look yeah. at the parents' income. They look at the if the child needs the services, the services right, and then so that will certainly save a marriage. Yeah, you know if you have, of course, you, then then again you have the other issue of people in. You know, I've always felt like we had a swinging door at one point because people were in and out. Mm -hmm. I mean, he. You didn't he, live in your family, did you? Yeah, you did. I did. How was how was family uh, as far as support there? Very, very. We had a lot of support. That the the problem back when Christian was released from the hospital is that, and I think he was the first one that came home after this long stint that was coming home with a tracheostomy and he needed breathing treatments every two to three hours and blah blah blah. Twenty four hour care, right? Right. So no nursing. No insurance. Yeah. Our insurance cut off the day we got out. That's part of my stress mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. And they only taught one person how to take care of him. Me. Wow. And everything's changed now. That's all changed. Yeah. But so Thank I goodness. I know. I know. So we we were kinda like I feel like Christian was kind of a guinea pig because we were in a teaching hospital mm -hmm. and we were kind of guinea pigs and um, yeah, throw them out. <laughs> throw them out the door and see how they do in the home, <laughs> the home life. Give you like a little helmet on your head with a camera <laughs> so you can track what you're doing through the day. Like I'm just going to the garage for a minute, okay? <laughs> I'm checking the laundry. <laughs> ah, what was that? Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know what? Oh, yeah. You handle it with humor, too. I mean, mm -hmm. if I think that if you can't laugh at yourself and laugh, that's the way I've always been anyway. But my family, Gary's parents, have always been very supportive, and they live close to us. I have had uh, my mom, but my mom died 20 years ago, but um, my mom actually lived with us for time and helped helped me with the boys so I could go back to work. But So I've always had a lot of family support. Was it hard for you to ask for help? No. No. <laughs> I know for some that uh, that's what I wanted. Like you know, for some people, they're not at you know they're not asking because it's like because that guilt you know like well, this is supposed to be my job, this is supposed to be what I what I should do, and, and so it's like blow blow and go blow and go until uh, you go in the garage and you yeah and you scream and 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 things. So yeah, I think. On some level, you know, there is that. I should be the sole person responsible for it. Well, you know, yeah. As opposed to what what reality is, is you have to ask for help. 
or you're going nuts, totally yeah. nuts. The issue back with for us though is that my my mother, my mom didn't live in close to us when he came home, um, but they weren't trained in like suctioning a trach and, and terrified. So any kind of nursing, they would they would have stayed with him all day long or. Yeah. You know, if he didn't have all the medical needs, yeah. it terrified him. Yeah. So, and you can't blame him for that. So, um, but they were very supportive in every way. It wasn't a, it wasn't an easy time, but, and I understand. I, that's why I really relate to these families that are going through this. Yeah. And I'd like to tell them everything's going to be okay, but it's not. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's, that's funny. I'm, I'm so enjoying this. <laughs> I am too. So, uh, this is the one question that we actually prepared. <laughs> it's not just winging it. If you could talk to your younger self, what advice would you give her? To my younger self? Mm hmm. You should have put more creep on your face. <laughs> the honest answer to that question is that I wish I had more faith in myself back then and more trust in myself that I could have spoken up sooner. I don't know how, I, and I don't know what I mean by that. I think I always, I, I was shy and I was intimidated and I wish I wasn't. So I would tell my younger self to, um, to have tr more trust that you do know your child better. And he was unique in his deaf blindness in our school district too. Yeah. Yeah. So he was very unique. So that would be it. Yeah. There's a uh, saying for uh, cancer survivors, uh, you never know how strong you can be until you have to be strong, mm -hmm. and, and that, I think that resonates in, in our community as well, mm -hmm. because, because that is the case. It's mm -hmm. like, man, you, you never know what you have in you until your motivator brings it out. And that's great advice. to. to to say to your younger self, have faith in yourself. Yeah, I think that's what one of the things that um, the reasons that I continue to do. I knew, and I don't know if you know his story. I've got a, I've got a story written about him as far as what. I know. I was going to ask, can I have a copy of the story? Uh, you can get it on Sparkle. Um, wow. You know Sparkle? Yeah. It, okay. If you just type in Christian Knapp, deafblind, it'll come up. Oh, good. And it's the unedited copy. We have one on DBMAT website, but it's not the story of his life. It's the story of his, him getting to Anne and what, and what happened with the school district and how horrible that was. Oh. But that's when I literally flipped my lid and my husband was like, he was totally, but I had, it was like going into the garage and screaming, except I had people that 
I had been talking to, talking to, talking to, and they weren't hearing me, and I was done. Yeah. And it changed the whole path of his life when I did that. Wow. And I did, she made me do it. She made me get angry. I didn't want to get there, but when you have someone say, well, you can get an intervener, but number one, um, we'll have to take uh, one of my aides away from one of my other programs for a one-on-one. -on -one. This is the special ed director. And I've tried to find um, someone that wants to work with Christian and, and nobody wants to. Oh my word. I was in tunnel vision. Yeah. And all the people, and she kept talking and talking and talking. And all I could hear was people telling her to be quiet. Mm -hmm. But I thank her. And that's in, that's in the story if you want to read it. Gosh, but absolutely. Uh, but it yeah. sent us to, um, the, the, to the ultimate where he should have been. Mm -hmm. But then when he graduated and that school district kind of went back to their old ways, I went, I only help one child. And this needs to be a systems change, like Mark was talking about, IDEA. Mm -hmm. I've been waiting for it to be reauthorized since 2011, you yeah. know, to get yeah. the intervener and the teacher of the deaf-blind in there. Helping one child, then they went back. I said it needs to change at here and trickle down. So that's why I'm doing it. That's what Christian wants me to do. Yeah. I love that fired up energy that's here at the symposium, you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not just fired up, pissed off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of, it, it's time to do something, and I, uh, that was the original reason. Uh, that's what I think. We are in the last frontier of discrimination, I believe. I, I mean, you know, we've, we've addressed, I think, all areas except for this one as much as it needs to be. The, oh my gosh, you need to write that down for me. I'm gonna, I gotta throw that into my Discrimination, yeah. right? That, I mean, that, that's what it is: access, um, sense of belonging. Um, you know, we don't have anybody that wants to work with him. My God! Now, mind you, that was in '99. Yeah. '99. Yeah. I was sit at the back of the bus. Uh -huh. like, what kind of crap is that? You, you know, I mean, Brown versus Board of Education is what motivated. That fight for special ed, I, I I believe, you know, I mean, that was that trend then, and now it. But then it's it it's. I feel like it's stagnated a little bit. Uh, uh, well, definitely and definitely for um, the deaf blind community because because it's like that low incident disabilities is everybody except them. Uh -huh. Which yeah, we all should be pissed off that that that's happening. So that sucks. Yeah. Because it is, it's discrimination. Yeah, and it's uh, because of this low incidence population, and you know, I mean, Vivica and I have been to, paid our own way, went to Washington in March for National Advocacy Day, yeah. um, and I'm not, I don't care that I paid my own way. I'm just, you know, this is on my nickel because, and her nickel because this is how strongly well, we feel. That, that just shows your passion of like. I'm doing this, you know, hell or high water. And we 
you know, we talked to, we've had many people talk to their, this is, I'll tell you why I'm really pissed off right now, it, but we've had many people talk to, uh, in April, call their congressman, which I think there's 36 or 7 and 37, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not one Texan has signed on to uh -huh. the Cogswoman, and that. Yeah. It does. Yeah. We have the either the second or the third. There's an argument between Vivica and I. Do we have the second or the third largest population of deafblind kids yeah. in the United States? And we don't have a single person from Texas signing uh -uh. on. Uh-uh. Co-sponsoring. Uh-uh. Yeah. And I, we've talked to Ted Cruz's office. We've talked to Senator Cornyn's office. And I think because it's such the right thing to do, yeah. as a matter of fact, my, the back of our cards say, of our DBMAC cards say, uh, interveners and teachers of the deafblind, it's the right thing to do, is our motto. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired. <laughs> I want them just to do it. I'm tired. Just get it done. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how people can find out more about what you're doing. And uh, you've mentioned something about a memorial that you do for Christian. Talk okay. about that. Well, uh, DB Matt, um, back in 2006, we gave our first scholarship for um, its online training, college credit training, for uh, people that are working with deafblind kids or actually. Maybe I think we've even given some that want to work with deafblind in the deafblind field. Um, since then, we've given probably sixty over sixty thousand dollars in scholarships. Wow. Scholarships to educators that that uh, to be trained to para paralegal or and para actually it's been paras and then uh, parents. We've given some to parents that are actually intervening with their children and. We accept applications um, January through May of each year, and then we... Where can uh, they get that application and, and submit it? It's on the DBMAT website, mm -hmm. and it's www.dbmat-tx.org. Okay, we're going to put that in our, in our notes transcript notes okay too now the other thing that the, the money the money comes from we started the Christian at Memorial Golf Tournament and this I think is going to be our seventh or eighth year Nice. we missed one year because there was a hurricane uh, <laughs> but um, that's where we raise our money. So all the proceeds go into to DB Matt and into this special fund, and we're just trying to do DB Matt, the Knapp family. We're trying to do our part to get some people some training, and hopefully there and there's not, you know, except through TSBVI um, outreach, and they do great work. But we're just trying to help out too. Yeah. 